Hey folks, we're back. I am uh, extremely excited to be uh, joined here by the former Chief Justice, Walter Carpinetti. Hello, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, good morning. I'm very happy to be doing the. This is my first podcast with a judge or former judge, I think. Well, I'll try to uh, not uh, mess things up too much so, so that you know, the way is open for others. No, 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 uh, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> okay, um, got it. So I actually met you, you were at the skits this weekend and we were, were chatting and you, uh, you've read my website. So I said, uh, I'd love to do a podcast with you. And, and you, uh, you agreed and here we are. I did agree, although I, I saw Nancy Mead there at the after party and checked with her and she gave you a seal of approval so her and i did one too about a month and a half ago and right it was pretty good i should clarify i was at the after party for the skits uh because the new jack the new juno arts and culture center had a booth there and i was you know uh um taking care of that i only saw a couple of minutes of the skits when i got there a little okay yeah i'm sorry i missed them they're pretty funny but the after the after the band was really good and the band was terrific, and I would have gone to the skits if I could have, but there was a symphony night. My wife's on the board, so. Oh, nice. I, I, uh, I enjoy the Anchorage Symphony quite a bit when I'm back. Too, just too much going on in June. A lot, lot happening here. I got to say, your house, you have a very awesome view of the of the water here in Juneau. So you've you. been here for a long time in this? We bought it in 1975. It was a miner's cabin, and uh, when children started arriving, we were put into a position of either leaving or making it bigger, so we went down we went up we expanded every which way we could so i noticed the basketball half basketball court when i walked in it's uh it's a pride and joy i will say very fun so i want to talk a little bit about your background um your legal background and then coming to alaska and then we'll talk about becoming a judge so you i was reading about you you're from san francisco i am and your your father was a, a judge he was he was on the superior court there so and then you obviously became a lawyer and I guess your brother was a lawyer, was a lawyer too, right? My brother uh, practiced law for a number of years, and uh, and actually, uh, we came to Alaska in 1970. I had a clerkship with Justice Diamond of the Alaska Supreme Court. My wife and I came in. We really intended just to stay for a year. We'd just gotten married. It was kind of like, you know, extended honeymoon kind of thing. And I remember thinking, well, how bad could it be? And we both fell in love with the place. And uh, she wanted to go to law school. There's no law school here. So she went back to San Francisco in 71. Um, I went up to Fairbanks and did some uh, work with Justice Rabinowitz. Oh, uh, really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was very kind. and uh, uh, I Kind of an I- legal icon here in the state. Huh? Oh, yes, an unbelievable human being and an incredible judge. Any event, the three years that Annie was in law school, I spent about half the time up here and half the time down there. One of the things I did was open a law office with my brother, and so we practiced together for a couple of years. And then when she finished law school, we came back up. So did your, I think I, did I read your dad came and worked with you guys for a while? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we started off as Carpinetti and Carpinetti. My dad joined us, so it was Carpinetti, Carpinetti, and Carpinetti. We offered for my wife to join to get four in there, and she basically said, I, you know, I think I can do better than that. Carpinetti, so. Carpinetti, Carpinetti, Carpinetti. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a joke. But in any event, as soon as she finished, she took the California bar just as a kind of insurance, but uh, we came back up in uh, the fall of 70, 
four then and have been here ever since. And she had also, I had heard from some people, worked in the le- legislate, legislative branch? Or? Yeah, she worked for the Legislative Affairs Agency for a couple of years, uh, or a few years, and she really liked it. But um, then she got into prosecution. And I'd been in the Public Defender Agency. I left that, and as soon as I left that, she went in and uh, was an assistant DA and prosecuted cases for a few years. And then um, I went on the Superior Court, and that put her in the awkward position of not... I mean, I couldn't be a Superior Court judge and Annie be a prosecutor because it's such a small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's no way that there wouldn't have been conflicts just every day. Yeah, every, yeah, and every. so she was the one that sacrificed her career and uh, uh, stayed with the Department of Law but got out of active prosecution and went and worked <clears throat> for the uh, uh, Department of Law uh, doing things that didn't take her into court every day. So when you decided to become a judge, you were a public defender. I was a public defender for four years from uh, about 74 to 78. And then I opened a a private office. And I was in that office for about three years with Bill Counsel, a terrific lawyer. Uh, And then... um, I applied for the bench. It was I hadn't thought about applying that early, but um, there were two judges in town, Alan Compton, uh, two Superior Court judges. Alan Compton was on the Superior Court and Thomas Stewart. Alan Compton applied for and got onto the Supreme Court. So that opened one position. And Judge Stewart announced just about the same time he was going to be retiring. So there were two positions coming open at pretty much the same time or close in time to each other. And I thought... It's really a little early for me, but if I don't apply now, it'll be another 15 years probably. And so I threw my hat in the ring, and I, I, I was appointed by Governor Hammond uh, to one of those positions. Actually, the second one. I applied. Um, how many How many people? Was it a lot of people applying? Or uh, I don't remember now. I think it was about seven or eight probably, and three or four names went to the governor. And he appointed Rod Pegues, who was an assistant attorney general. And then, as I said, just a few months later, the other position came open. I applied again, and uh, and that time I was appointed. It's kind of an interesting story. When I went in for the appointment with the governor the first time, Governor Hammond looked at me and he said, if I don't appoint you to this, are you going to apply the next time? And I said, oh, God, that's the one question I was hoping you weren't going to ask me because it might not be appreciated, but it's a difficult process to apply, especially if you're in a small private practice like I was. You put your life on hold for, for about the, six months. For the judicial council, that really examines everything. The judicial you, right? council just really examines things carefully, and it's about a five- or six-month process. So if you're in private practice, do you take cases? What do you tell your clients? You know, Do you take new cases? It's it's a hard thing that's to a good, do. That's a good point, yeah, because a case could last a year or years, right, sometimes? Well, sure, cases go on, and lawyers want, I mean, clients want somebody who's, Focusing on their case and working on it, so, and not thinking about leaving. So, what happens when you get appointed? You have to just kind of you close anybody that close the practice, or they well, sell was, it, or uh, it depends on the kind of practice you're in. If you're in a large firm, it probably is a relatively easy thing to deal with. Other, you know, other partners of yours or other associates pick up the cases. If you're in a small firm like I was, it was myself and another partner, and at that point, we had one associate working with us. It takes some time to find people to take your cases. My partner took many of them, and others I had to find lawyers. So it took, I was appointed in October, October 15th. It took me about two and a half months to clear everything up, and then I, I was actually uh, sworn in in early January. It, did you know Governor Hammond, or did you? I mean, you knew no. Who, I mean, I knew who he was. You, you, know, you didn't have like a relationship with him, or knew him? No. Wow. So you got called into the. It was like a one-on-one type meeting, or? Yeah, he he was very uh, careful about judicial appointments. I think he correctly believed that you know the governor's term is four or eight years. 
a governor who appoints a judge, that judge can be on the bench. For, I was on the bench collectively for 32 years. So he regarded it as an important yeah. part of what he did. Maybe just real quick, we'll talk about kind of fast forward to current day. There was just a situation where the governor of Dunleavy didn't appoint one of the superior court judges in Palmer. And right. there's the constitution says um, the council chooses and sends the names over. And then the statute says 45 days and he hasn't chosen yet. Um, and I don't think that's happened before. I mean, there's been some governors in the past. I think Hickle and Murkowski had expressed frustration with some of the names. But um, I guess, have you been watching that? or I have been. It's um, it's of concern to people like myself. Um, uh, and when I say like myself, I, I was in the system for a long time. And then um, shortly after I retired, there was an attempt to amend the Constitution with regard to judicial selection, which I thought was a bad idea. And uh, a group of us went down and testified against it and whatnot. And at the end of that session, the proposal didn't pass, but it came very close to getting through the Senate. And we thought, this will come up again. We should organize. So we organized a 501c4 nonprofit entitled... Justice, justice or politics, not, yep. Justice, not politics, Alaska. And so so when I say people like myself, people that have been looking at this, and um, it was a little worrisome that the governor uh, didn't make that appointment. As I understand it, he, uh, after meeting with the chief justice, uh, agreed that the Constitution's very clear that the council nominates and the governor shall appoint from among those names. So hopefully that um, problem has been resolved. I don't know what to say about the timing issue. Probably shouldn't say anything because that may that may go further, and I don't want to you mm-hmm. know, step into okay. something that that's outside of the, my the, experience. There, there is has been an effort over the years, and, and even today, there's some folks that want to see judges elected, like other states. Where I'm from, New Mexico, I think we elect judges. Other states elect judges, um, and we do it a lot differently because of kind of the Constitution and our, our history of when they made the state um and it seems to me it just it just it seems like such a bad idea to elect judges because all of a sudden you go into the to the political kind of realm and other states have had prop you know there's been a lot of stories of corruption and you know donations or certain decisions get made right and and your, your group is really trying to prevent Elect, elect, electing judges, right? What we're trying to do is keep the system that we have now because we think that it is really the gold standard in judicial selection and judicial retention. We have elections, but they're retention elections. In other words, the process starts when there's an opening. Uh, people have to apply for it. You fill out a very long, detailed application form uh, that goes into your educational background, goes into what you've been doing, uh, where you've been practicing, um, you know, it asks for credit information. It asks for, hopefully this is short, criminal information. You know, in other words, they find <laughs> everything out that they can. You have to put the last number of cases that you had, and the council goes and interviews uh, the lawyers on the other side and the judges to see how you did. They then poll every lawyer in the state on five different attributes. They hold public hearings. I mean, it's a long involved process. And then the council's job is to pick the best candidates from among the group that applies and to send those to the governor. And then the governor chooses from among those candidates. And then the people weigh in at the first general election that's at least three years after the appointment. The um, the people 
get a chance to say yes or no. And the, and they, and the council goes through the same process. They pull all the lawyers, they pull police officers, social workers, they pull jurors that was in, that were, that were in that judge's court and they try to get the best information and then they make a, re- mm-hmm. a recommendation and then the people get the final word. Yeah, there, there was a last year, the Michael Corey situation. He, right. he didn't, I think there's probably a lot could be said about that, but that was a situation that he wasn't retained. That's right, and it, uh, I think that was the first time that a, a judge whose retention had been recommended by the council wasn't retained, and there were a lot of particular reasons for that. Um, I, I'm not a, uh, a voter in the third district, so I didn't have to vote in that election. Had I been a voter, how would I have voted? I can't say for sure. My inclination, based on what I read, probably would have been to retain Judge Corey. But I understand that there were people that thought that uh, he should not be retained. And that's part of our system. And so in JNPA, in Justice Not Politics Alaska, we don't take positions on whether voters should vote yes or no. We just say the system that we have is the best balance between getting people that are selected on the basis of merit, having the governor... Uh, who's been elected by the people to make big decisions, make the decision as to which of the qualified candidates should be appointed, and then let the people have the final say three yeah, years that's, later. It's a good point you made about, you know, a governor has four or eight years and a judge could have 30 years. So in your yeah. case, we said 30. I was on the Superior Court for uh, 17 years and the Supreme Court uh, about 15. So, so a total of about 32 years on the bench. So then you applied for the Supreme Court. I did. That was uh, Knowles, right? Governor Knowles? Governor Knowles was the governor. And it was the same kind of thing. I applied. Um, another person was appointed, Alex Brinner, who uh, had been the chief judge of the Court of Appeals. Stunningly competent judge. Um, I probably would have appointed Alex if I had been the governor and was had to, had to choose between Alex and myself. Anyway, Alex was appointed. And then there was another vacancy shortly after that. About two years later, Justice Compton, who had been the Superior Court judge down here in Juneau, retired. And I applied again. And, and that time I was appointed. And, and again, it was the same governor, Governor Knowles. So, I mean, for the for a judge, that's like the big that's the big one, right? That's the big core. That's a pretty big deal to be on the Supreme Court. Must have been pretty exciting. It was very exciting. Sure. Yeah. I um I I asked you this at the um after the after party there after the skits, but I once asked a friend of mine who's a really good lawyer. He's my age. He's younger, but he's a really good lawyer. And I asked him once. I said, hey, "Are you ever going to be you know apply to become a judge?" And he says, "No way, no, no no way, right away." He said, "No way." I said, "Why not?" He says, "He says a judge is the loneliest job you'll ever have because you can't." I never really thought about this, but he says you really can't talk to anybody about your work. If anybody brings up anything at all political, you can't talk about it. And he says, you end up hanging out with a lot of just kind of judge people because you really can't, you know, be in the dinner party and start talking about, oh, what's going on with this issue or Trump or the governor or legislature. Is that, is that true? Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, I think it's very accurate. I think that especially in a town the size of Juneau, when I was on the Superior Court, um, we pretty much had to, you know, cut off. Uh, for social purposes, much interaction with lawyers because it's just, you know, you have a dinner party and you have a lawyer at the party and then a week later or a month later that lawyer's in court with you. It's just the the appearance is not very good. And mm-hmm. so uh, I remember Larry Weeks who uh, was in the DA's office when I was in the public defender's office. So we had a lot of cases against each other and we became really good friends. Larry came on the bench about nine years after I did. But I remember him saying early on in the process uh, how you just there's just a whole lot of things you can't do um, that you had done before because it makes it look like you might be favoring one side or the other when a case gets in front of you. And I 
I came to the conclusion after a few years as a Superior Court judge that probably the single most important decision I made every year was hiring my law clerk. And, you know, why why would that be, people would say. And I'd say, because that's the only person in the world I can talk to these, talk to, talk about my cases with. You know, I, that's the person that comes in the room and we just go through it and we do the research or and I challenge and he or she challenges me I can't have that kind of discussion with See, I'd, be a, I'd be a real bad judge because uh, I'm, I'm chatty <laughs> <laughs> well I mean there are chatty people who've been on the bench they just have to limit the people with whom they have conversations or limit the 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 scope of the conversations mm-hmm. you know but but lawyers are a particular problem if you're spending time with them a lot as a judge because it looks like you're forming relationships that that might affect the way you act. It's more an appearance thing. Is there, is there any kind of exception? Or I mean, what if you have a past relationship with a lawyer for, I don't know, 20 years or something? Sure. For example, Bill Counsel, who was my partner I mentioned to you, I continued to go to his house for dinner, and he came to my house, and we just had an understanding that uh, if, if there was a case of his that got assigned to me, I'd recuse myself. I'd just say. And I, I'm a little out of, it's been a while since I've looked at the, code of judicial conduct and i think it might be a two-year period in which there's you know that that former relationship like that limits you but i just came to the conclusion i wasn't going to do it you know we were too close i just didn't want to be deciding a case that bill was involved in so you were on the court for quite a while and then in 2000 was it not not 12 or 9 when you became I, as a chief justice I became Chief Justice in 2009. It's a three-year term, so that ended in 2012. And actually, before my term ended, a month or two before my term ended, I I announced that I was going to retire. I was coming up for a retention election in 2012. I could have stood for retention, but I was 67 at the time. It's a mandatory 70 retirement, and I... I had actually planned to retire earlier, and so it was it was time. So I announced before I before my term as chief was up, and I did another thing when I made that announcement. I tried to I did say to all judges, try to plan your lives enough so that you can give an announcement of a retirement <laughs> at least six to eight months before um, you're going to leave. That gives the council an mm-hmm. opportunity to go start this big long process, so that when you leave, somebody else can step right in rather than having you know, a big long delay that that just hurts the court and it hurts the people that are waiting for decisions to have a delay like that. So when you were the chief justice, I, you know, every year the they have the state of the judiciary. Yeah. And the chief justice, they just had one there a few months back with right. uh, Justice Bolger, Chief Justice Bolger. Um, when you know Senator Murkowski or Senator Sullivan, they give their they give their speech. They always take questions afterwards. I've always noticed if it was Bolger, or Dana Fabe, they give their remarks and then they they leave. There's no there's no question time. Um, that's and, correct. And I assume that's just because you, I mean, you have no idea what they're going to ask. or I mean, there's a lot of things you really can't in that position discuss, I assume, right? That's it. Um, I will say when I was um, chief justice and went to conferences of chief, the conference of chief justices as an active organization, there were I talked to chief justices who did it differently, who would make a state of the judiciary and then they would answer questions or they would um, go to some place for a small press conference or the various different ways. And and it was discussed. Um, I had a request from a legislator, <clears throat> pardon me, who. Um, 
uh, one of my daughters had worked for, I think. And he just said, I think you should answer questions afterwards. And, you know, I thought about it and, and discussed it with my colleagues. And the conclusion was there's just such possibility for um, subjects coming up that the court really, that a justice couldn't get into. And then it looks as if the justice is trying to yeah. avoid things. And, and it just seemed like the, the downside was much greater than the upside. The upside would be transmitting information, letting the legislators know what's going on. But we have really good, we, the court system, I still think of it as we. The court system has really good representatives down here. They can get this, the court's position on anything that they want. Well, you mentioned Nancy Mead earlier, and she's always in the Capitol, always testifying on bills, and sure. she's always um, answering questions. She's very, very, very good uh, and, presence. And Doug Wolliver, who, who yeah, is Doug too. He's a person great. down here on budgetary matters. I mean, I think they can get information. It just seemed like <clears throat> it was <clears throat> uh, the better decision to make to just leave it at the remarks. So here's a question I had that I'm... Um, really been wanting to ask and some people I told I was doing the podcast they, they said you, you have to ask this um, okay. so when you guys Why am I getting nervous I know um, when you guys make a decision when the court makes a decision there's five justices right so right how, I mean can you talk a little bit about how that I mean is it the chief justice does he have more or she has more way is it the, the person who's writing the dissent is it five equal votes do you, do you guys talk out do you lobby each other? I mean how does how sure. does that work when you're making a decision sure uh, great question um, First of all, when a case comes in and it's ready to be argued or to be decided, the chief clerk tells us who it's assigned to, and the chief clerk has a rotating list, and she assigns to the justice who's next up that case. We have no knowledge of that. And in fact, I think she has multiple lists, one for civil cases, one for uh, criminal petitions, one for various categories. So the, the justices get cases in a random order that's taken care of by someone else. Once a case is assigned to a justice, the clerk for that justice will prepare a bench memo, will read everything, the record and the excerpt of record and the briefs, and then prepare a memo that goes not only to that clerk's justice, but to all of them. Okay, so everybody has the same analysis. Now, an individual justice could ask his or her own clerk to, to prepare something, but typically I don't think that's done. But in any event, you walk into the argument or you walk into the uh, conference if, if the attorneys have given up argument and just said decided on your own um, with with the knowledge of who the case has been assigned to and with the same factual and legal analysis in front of you. Then the argument takes place, or if there's no argument, the conference takes place right after the argument. And in the conference, the person to whom the case was assigned, the justice to whom it was assigned, begins and gives his or her view of the case, takes usually 10, 12, maybe 15 minutes, maybe less if it's a simple case, and says, this is how I recommend we decide it. This is a public thing or a private no, no, thing? No, very private. Okay. Nobody else in the room. Um, then the uh, most junior justice gives his or her view of the case, uh, and they go around the table in order, unless somebody disagrees with that recommendation, and then the sense is that you should say, well, I disagree with it, and say why. And then once everybody's had a chance to be heard, you know what the outcome's going to be because you can count the votes. It's 5-0 or 5-1. Yeah. Okay. If the person to whom the case was assigned originally has 
the majority with him or her, in other words, has two others, then the case stays with that person. If, however, the consensus is not to do what that person, what that justice recommended, then the, the senior justice in the new majority decides who it should be written by, who the opinion should be written by, and you go from there. You asked a question about uh, discussing it with uh, other members or is there lobbying or something like that, and the answer to that is there's no communication about a case between the justices except in the conference room when everybody's present or by written memo that goes to everybody. Okay, so you can't you can't pull somebody aside and say, hey, hey, check this out. I, I think we should really do this one. Like the, legislators do that stuff all the time. Yeah, the court is really very different. Really adamant that it's got to be a process in which everyone knows everything that's being said. And um, I will say that the, that the court's really very careful about making sure that. I mean, I never in 15 years walked into an argument, an oral argument, or a conference if the argument had been waived, given up, uh, thinking, well, I know what the count is. I know you know, what this colleague is thinking. I know what that colleague's thinking. We try to study the case individually. We all have the same materials. We have access to all the same materials. And then when you're in the conference, that's when people state their positions. Other people state their positions. We find out what the majority uh, is and we find out who's going to be writing the opinion. Now that starts a process in which minds can change. I mean, you can you can have a a case in which um, the court is going one way, and then a, a draft circulates, and again it goes to everybody, and somebody may have a problem with it. Uh, somebody may say, you know, at the conference I felt this, but now that I've had a chance to see how it writes up. It's not convincing to me. I've started to think this way. It's a, it's a, it can be a fairly long at times process because you've got five usually pretty smart people who are helped by pretty smart clerks, uh, law clerks. It's a prestigious position to get out of law school. Um, and once people dive a little bit further into things, they may may change their mind. How often? I mean, how often is there? It's real close. You got two and two. Maybe somebody's kind of. I mean, are a lot of the decisions four to one or five to zero or, or most some? most decisions are either well I haven't looked I haven't done any kind of study in the last few years but um, while I was on the court I think the court prided itself in trying to find unanimity trying to decide cases as broadly as possible um, when necessary so as to so as to not have a fractured court that makes it difficult for the lawyers and for the public generally mm-hmm. to understand the law. One of the one of the things that one of the problems, the biggest problems that I had with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is that you know you've got nine people, you often have four or five opinions, and those four or five opinions are split different ways on different issues. Sometimes it's virtually impossible to find out what the holding of the case is, what it actually says in terms of what the law is, because there might be three or four points in the case, three or four issues, and they come out differently on each one in, in, in shifting majorities. It, I think it makes it real difficult for the country as a whole, and it makes it difficult for lawyers. And yeah, people I mean, some are, of these big, big, big decisions are four to five to four. Well, five to four isn't, yeah, that too. But five to four at least is understandable if you have a majority and a minority mm-hmm. and a dissent. But sometimes there's, sometimes there's five or six people that are writing decisions, and they concur with one person in part, and then they... Uh, disagree with another person. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really tried hard 
to decide, I, I use the term decide the case broadly, I guess what I should have said was decide the case as narrowly as possible where we could all say this is a deciding issue in this case, it's enough to get it resolved, and, and we can speak as one voice. So, so um, somebody told me that, I don't I really, I'm not a court expert, but somebody had said that um, a lot of the cases the Supreme Court handles are, you know, like uh, child uh, or div- divorce or petition, like because domestic. Because in the state, I guess you can appeal to the Supreme Court directly, or is that kind of I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that? But no, I, no, you're exactly right, and it's something that a lot of people don't understand. We have a court of appeals in this case, and it's called the court of appeals, but it only hears criminal cases. Um, so, other cases from the superior court, the trial court of general jurisdiction, go directly to the Supreme Court. For example, um, domestic cases generally, uh, divorces, dissolutions, child custody disputes, division of property disputes, those go directly to the Supreme Court. And at the time I left, which was twenty, the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, I think that domestic cases as a whole, all of those categories, uh, totaled around 40% of the yeah, see, cases. That's, that's, when I heard that, that's fascinating because I was, you think Supreme Court and you think, you know, you kind of think the most important kind of controvert, the really big ones. Sure. And you don't, you don't think about, oh, like domestic or family or, you know, cases whatever. With cases with general jurisdiction. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's, and it's not that way. And I will say one thing, um, and I, I, I'm sure you didn't mean it this way, to the people that are involved, the, those domestic cases are really, really important Right, right. Cases. I guess what I meant was was the hugest implications on yes, society exactly. or... Yeah. So uh, the like Supreme the Court... Like fund, you know, case sure, was the big... Sure, And giant constitutional mm-hmm. issues. Um, I, I used to like to tell the story about cases that made it to the Supreme Court. Lawyers have a sort of a derogatory term for a case that isn't important, and they'll call it, oh, that's a dog case, you know. A it's what? like dog case. Oh, dog, you know, okay. And I remember telling people we had while it, while I was on the court, there were three cases involving dogs, literally involving dogs, a Dillingham ordinance about um, putting a dog down after it had bit somebody, and whether the dog got a second bite. And anyway, three different cases, and you know, every one of them were one of them involved a constitutional issue having to do with notice and whether you know um, uh, a person's uh, property right in the dog, I guess, uh, had been um, violated by a failure to give notice of the uh, ordinance involved. And so even cases that you would think, oh, that's kind of minor, that should be handled in a, a lower court yeah. and, and never get any anywhere further, you know, made it to the Supreme Court because they had issues that, that needed to be resolved and that... Uh, the Supreme Court resolved. It's not all giant oil cases and giant social issues, uh, you know, like abortion or gay marriage. I mean, the, the majority of the cases are cases that work their way up from the superior courts, and the superior courts handle a broad spectrum of cases. So that's something else I wanted to ask you. When you were on the um, the superior court, I mean, you, you were, I think you were involved in the Emerita Hess case, right? The oil? I was. So, so that was the oil Tax was it taxes or kind of? It was a dispute about whether the oil companies were accurately uh, paying the royalties Royalty, to the yeah. state that uh, the 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 basic lease between the state and oil all the oil companies required them to pay. And it's a it was a two or three page lease, and it generated litigation that went on forever. Actually, Amarada Hess. Uh, began uh, when oil started flowing in 1977. Um, I 
was assigned that case in, I think, 1984. I was appointed, I started judging in 82. It had actually laid dormant after Judge Compton made some decisions. And I got it in 1984, and I, I was just kind of astounded at how big it was and how long it had been going on. And I went to Reno Judge School to take a special course in handling large cases. And one of the things I learned there was don't let the parties set the pace of the litigation. And so I called everybody in and I said, we're going to have monthly meetings on this case. I optimistically called them progress, (laughs) progress (laughs) meetings. And, you know, lawyers came in from kind of all over the world and really tried to push it. And to give you an idea of the scope of that case, uh, it was 1992 before we got the oil phase resolved 15 years since the well i had it from 84 to 92 and then it was 1995 before the gas phase was resolved and it involved the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars in settlement it both case both cases settled both cases settled on the first day of jury trial uh, we had called in like 300 people, and we were starting the process. And the last of the big three, which was Exxon in both cases, announced that they and the state had settled. But hundreds of millions of dollars in payments. And then uh, I was told by the lawyers that it probably, you know, the difference to the state in future royalty payments was in the billions. So it was a big, big case. So what I wanted to ask about that, and I mean, you know, that's a royalty issue, oil. There's, I mean, probably so many different issues you, you know, I don't know. Zoning, maybe. I don't know. It could be a million things. But when you're a judge, you have to, I guess, become kind of a general, um, I guess maybe almost an expert on these matters that you maybe have had no previous, how many many different topics could come up to you that you've never even maybe, you know, thought about maybe or or studied. Um, And I guess you just have to, I assume you have to just rely on the lawyers and you have to probably read a lot and really become kind of an expert on something that you've maybe never really thought about before? Yeah, that, that's a great question. A, a superior court judge really has to be a generalist because especially in a town like Juneau where you're not, you don't specialize at all. You get everything. You get criminal cases. You get civil cases of all types, uh, children's cases. And um, there are a lots of areas that you just haven't had any experience in. So um, I think it's really important to have a, a great law clerk. Remember we talked about that's a really important yeah. decision you make. And it's important to um, study as much as you can, read the briefs, and it's really important to ask the lawyers a lot of questions, you know, sort of challenge them in court. But there were some areas that, oh, I just I just found terribly difficult. Uh, like what's, what's the, maybe, does something come to mind, the strangest or the just the, the um, oddest kind of? Laws having to do with um, probate and, um, you know, people dying without a will, people having a will. Um, it's a fairly arcane area, and I hadn't practiced it. When I went into private practice with Bill Counsel, we thought, oh, we should do trusts and estates, we should do wills. And I remember traveling down to Ketchikan for about a three-day uh, continuing legal education, uh, and about two days into it, I called him and I said, I am so far behind, I'm not sure this is something we ought to get into, because I hadn't taken trusts and estates in in law school, hadn't been interested in it. And even at that point, you know, four years out of law school or five years out of law school, I thought this is an area that's going to be really tough for me. I could, as a lawyer, decide I'm just not going to take these cases. I will find a good lawyer in town and refer people that come in with those but, questions. But as a judge, you... as a judge, you can't do that. So, um, yeah, it's there's a, a lot of steep learning curves. There's no question about that. 
So what was, have you ever heard, when you were on the Superior Court, have you ever had a case decided somebody was upset about and kind of came, to, came up to you in the street, or has that ever happened? Or You know, I, I was really pretty lucky. There was a criminal case that uh, I was involved with, sort of tangentially, this fellow had a lot of problems. I sentenced him in one area, and then, I don't know, a year or two later, I got a call from the jail saying that he'd... He'd been in trouble in the jail, and he was making threats, and, and one of the persons he made threats against, or maybe the principal one was me, there wasn't too much to do. I mean, our name and telephone number and address has been in the phone book kind of forever, and um, it's a small town. Um, I had another fellow that I made a decision in a hotly contested child custody case, and both parents were were pretty disturbed, and it was a, it was sort of a no-win call in in the decision and I ruled against the father and he stood outside my office across the street kitty corner on 4th and Main there um, with uh, sort of his arms upheld and looking up at my window sometimes for hours at a time. It was a little scary and one night I was working late. It was before there was any security in the court building. Have a a guest. Yeah, can you... Can we hold for a sec, Mari? I'm doing a... Hi. Are you okay? Hello. Sure. Got the, got the kids coming in. <laughs> um, Talking about the uh, yeah, guy outside he, the... It was about 7 or 7.30, and all of a sudden my door what? burst open. By the way, you called that. You said somebody might come in I did. during the podcast. <laughs> you, you, you called that. <laughs> Just for the record, I wanted to put a note saying, quiet, recording going on. And I, I said, maybe that'll be good for the podcast. It'll give us some, some real... <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Real talk. Anyway, um, and he came bursting in, and he had a bag, and he was reaching into it while he was saying, Carbonetti, I've got something for you. In, in, the, court, in the court? No, it was in my office. It was back late at night. Oh, my gosh. And there, as it was before there was any security at all, even in the back. You could just walk in anywhere in the court building in those days. This was in the 80s, maybe early 90s. Anyway, he reached into his bag, and he pulled out a copy of the Constitution and... I oh, thank God it was that. No. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was kind of looking for something to throw at him or trying to decide whether to. And I, you know, thanked him and agreed it was an important document and, um, and you know, sort of ushered him out. But uh, it wasn't long after that that we started at least putting a lock on the door between the public part of the court building and the judges' chambers. And then, after, then years after that, you know, the court building itself got very security conscious with. Um, you know the metal detector. Yeah, machines probably, and all of that. probably a yeah. good call. But the, those those are the only two instances I can think of where I um, had any kind of blowback. Um, so when your kids just came in, you mentioned we talked earlier. Your dad was a judge. He was. Didn't you say uh, people used to always say, "Hey, are you Judge Carpenter's kid?" Or yeah, when I was practicing for a couple of years here while Annie was in law school and I was practicing somewhat in San Francisco, virtually. Every deposition I went to or, you know, court proceeding, when you'd have some contact with the other attorney, especially at the beginning of it, so many times I, I was asked, even when I was in the East Bay, I remember a deposition I was doing in Oakland one time, and and uh, the other lawyer said, say, are, you know, are you related to Judge Carpinetti in San Francisco? So, yeah, that happened a lot. So, you you have four, four kids, right? We do. So, didn't some, I think... Did some of them become lawyers too? Or? Yeah, our oldest, Chris, uh, went to law school and um, went out to Bethel and practiced as an assistant DA out there for almost eight years. And then our next oldest, Mari, who just burst in, 
went to law school uh, after she did some other things, but she went to law school and she was a prosecutor out in Dillingham. And then she came down to Juneau was in private practice for a while and then went to the attorney general's office. And she's now the um, OPA office of public advocacy. Or that's kind of like the, the public defender cases go there. If there's conflicts, a conflict, yeah, yeah, yeah conflicts. Right. She's just started with OPA before that. She was in the prosecution or working for the state. And then our um, second daughter, Leah, went to uh, law school and um, uh, did um, worked for a firm up in Anchorage, mainly doing native law. Oh, a lot of law, and, a lot of lawyers. <laughs> yeah, uh, three out of four. I accuse our children of having a lack of imagination, since both their mother and father are uh, are lawyers. But until Mari started with OPA, uh, all of my kid, all of my kids had followed their mothers. Um, career more. She was in the prosecution side. I was on the defense side when I started in the public defenders. And so I, I, you know, I have to admit they followed their mother more than they followed their father. So I imagine they probably oftentimes, you know, Carpinetti is a pretty known name in the legal world here. They probably get asked the same kind of question you got asked, right? They probably do. They probably do. And I'm sorry about that. I mean, you want to make it on your own. You want to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, and I'm sure they all are doing that. Well, this has been a, a great podcast. Uh, I, I <laughs> love love chatting with you. We're almost at forty minutes. You know, when it, when it's somebody like really interesting, you could do it for. I mean, you could do it for hours. Well, thank with you. Somebody like you, um, and you're still doing the justice. Not what is it? Justice. Not justice. Not, not politics, politics. Alaska. Yeah, I am. We. One thing we've really come to conclude in doing our work, trying to keep the Constitution the way it is with regard to Article Four of the Judiciary Article, is. There's a lot of people that don't really understand the justice system too well. For example, you know, um, checks and balances, uh, the idea that there's three separate branches of government and each one has its area in which it um, gets to make decisions. Um, A lot of people think that, well, the government's the government and the governor's the head of the government and everything follows. And that's not true. The governor is the chief executive officer of the state. That's true. And the the leader of the state in terms of the political system. But the legislature is a separate, second and separate branch of government that has its own prerogatives. Uh, I mean, the legislature passes the budget. Uh, the governor has veto power, but the legislature has, and the the legislature passes all of our laws. And then finally, the judiciary, you know, interprets those laws and hopefully carries them out. Uh, but also, when it comes to constitutional issues, has the ultimate authority of, to determining what the Constitution says and what it means. And so I think it's important because... Um, the, st- the the courts, for example, really protect people's rights. And there are times when a majority of the people might want a certain result to be reached. And they say, well, we're the majority and this is a democracy, so the majority rules. And that's usually the case. But there are some instances, for example, constitutional disputes where the rights of the minority have to be protected, even against what a majority might want. And that's where courts come in, as well as enforcing the laws and carrying. carrying well, there's that, there's that kind of famous picture, that cartoon where it's like, you know, four wolves and a sheep. And it's like, you know, we're going to vote on what's for dinner. Right. Exactly. And, and, and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes courts make unpopular decisions. Uh, and sometimes politicians feel, well, I don't like that decision. Let's change the judges or let's change the way it's done. And that's really dangerous. Do do you feel, I mean, there is a sentiment from some lawmakers or legislators or, you know, political figures, uh, you hear like the activist judge type comment or you, oh, the courts are out of control. And you seem to hear, 
hear that kind of more, I feel like more often now you start to hear that kind of um, animosity towards the court from certain political figures. You do. And I, I would say this, I think to say that a judge is an activist judge has absolutely no meaning. What the persons who use it usually mean is the judge did something that I think is wrong. It took power away from the legislature. And I understand that complaint, but judges that would be decisions that might be called liberal do that no more and no less than decisions that might be called conservative. I mean, in the 1930s, the Supreme Court was striking down legislation right and left. In other words, they were saying that what the Congress had decided and the president had signed into law was unconstitutional. All of those decisions were very conservative. They struck down labor laws. They struck down all kinds of laws that the Congress had passed and the and the president had signed that they didn't like, and they found a constitutional basis to do that. And so to say a judge is activist is really nothing more than saying, I disagree with that decision. I, I, I don't like what they, the decision, yeah. I don't like that decision. And I, I think it's a term that has really lost all useful meaning. Well, I think you're totally right about the understanding of of our government or, you know, civic, civics. I mean, I was a kid, I, I very vague, you know, very vividly remember, you know, you have the little demonstration, the bill, and it goes through the house and the Senate and then right. the president signs it or does, you know, he vetoes it or it goes back for the two third override or, sure. and then it goes to the court, you know, you kind of always had that. I think my parents were very good about teaching me that too, but I, um, I do think there's so many people who just really don't have, really any understanding of, of the system. And, and I, I mean, it's probably a big discussion about why that is in society, but um, you know, it's, I think it's paramount. People really understand they're voting, they're, they're electing folks. They're, they're going to make it, making decisions. And I don't know. I, th- I think it is a big problem. It is one of the things that justice, not politics, Alaska discovered in doing our work, trying to defend the constitutional system is a lot of our fellow citizens don't really have a good understanding of it. So we, we formed another uh, JNPA civics education fund, and this is a 501c3. And what we're trying to do is get out into the schools yeah, and into the great. groups, you know, public education or just public groups, Toastmasters, Rotary, Chambers of Commerce and say, let's take a look at how the system works and, and, you know, what we can do to make it better, but also understand what the basis is that's been so successful as a democracy for over 200 years. And it just involves limits. It involves judicial independence to make decisions that the Constitution requires. It involves the legislature having its proper role and the governor as well. Okay, so last question uh, sure. based on the previous topic of kind of the some folks um, get, get mad at the court. When you're a judge, um, you follow, you have to follow the law. That, that's the way it works. Do you ever, I'm sure you've come across or other people, do you ever come across a, a law or something that maybe really conflicts with what you actually believe or what you I mean that must be a problem right some, for it some... is it is well to answer your question yes I think I once said in public that there wasn't a day there wasn't a day when I was a superior court judge that I didn't have to make probably at least one decision that I did not agree with that I would not have done that way but for the fact that the law said do it this way uh, an easy example might have been bail decisions there were some portions of the bail law that seemed overly restrictive to me. There were some portions of the bail law. Well, I'll leave it at that. Sentencing. There were lots of instances where I thought the mandatory sentences 
were too high, they were harmful. There were times when I thought uh, they were too low or that the, that the uh, interpretations that came down were too low. But that's the way the system works. Mm-hmm. The legislature gets to say what the law is. The judge has to carry it out unless he or she can honestly c- come to the conclusion that the law itself violates the Constitution. And then that's ultimately a matter for the Supreme Court. That didn't happen very often. There were also other laws, very arcane laws, with regard to, oh, um, uh, adverse possession. You know, you have a piece of property and then somebody occupies a part of it. And how how long should that uh, period have to be before that property can actually be legally claimed by the other? Um, I, I disagreed with a lot of, of, of the adverse possession laws at the time. I it's like, like squatting? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there's just... Our legal system, our system of laws is a complicated system. It would be crazy to find somebody who in every instance says, oh, yeah, I think that's the best policy decision. Oh, yeah, I think that's the best policy decision. What judges do is try to their best to figure out what the law is and then carry it out, put it into effect. And, you know, the idea that when a judge makes a decision, that's his or her opinion as to what the law should be is wrong. What the judge is doing is carrying out what the law is. Did you ever come across something where there wasn't a, the law wasn't clear? Oh, sure. I mean, like, there's sure. like really no way to, oh, what do we do? Oh, yeah. And that happens a lot. A lot of times there's a, you, you can get a sense of what the legislature is trying to do, but the specific facts that you have in front of you really don't fit it perfectly. And then there's all kinds of tools for determining what uh, you should do. And you might, uh, for example, not to get too far into the weeds, there's a big legal debate as to whether or not you can look at legislative history to determine what the law means. There are some people that say, look only at the words of the statute. That's all you've got to go on. Others say, well, that doesn't make any sense. There's a hole here. The words don't cover this situation. Let's look at what the legislators said when they were debating it back and forth. And then, and then there's another, the, the first group says, well, a crafty legislator will say things that really aren't accurate as to what the law requires or means, but they kind of lard up the record so that somebody like you will mistakenly look at it and decide oh, wow, that's, that's uh, what it means. So it's very I'm, interesting to think. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but, I mean, I see exactly what you're saying. Your question is a good one because a lot of times figuring out what the law means and how it should be applied in X case is really difficult. But even even then, we have the the appellate court, the Supreme Court. So even within the system, the, the uh, judicial system, there's kind of their own checks, internal checks for. Yeah, but the, the, the appellate court has the same problem. I mean, I remember being on an appellate court on the Supreme Court and having to figure out what that law meant. I have the the judges, the superior court judges decision to help me but you know he or she isn't in any better position well, than i am that's another question i um have, have you ever over you know sometimes you overturn a decision right for a superior court do you ever do you ever see the guy and you're like oh hey hey oh sure it's, a small, it's a small state <laughs> sorry remember, about that i remember the first time i was overturned when i was on the superior court and feeling kind of bad about it and a friend said to me well you know you're not a real judge until you've been re- and you're not a real trial judge until you've been reversed yet you know i mean it happens and um and the same in the other way when you know when i was on the appeals court i think you know it's just it's part of what the job entails and everybody understands it and you know you try to be respectful i always tried to be respectful when i wrote an opinion reversing a superior court judge uh but um that's just part of the job well, uh, Mr. Chief Justice Carpenetti, I really, really appreciate you doing the pod- podcast. Fa- fascinating discussion. I think uh, 
I have a feeling a lot of my lawyer friends will be listening to this one. Well, I hope so. I've enjoyed it myself. Thanks. Maybe, for... maybe we can do a, do another one down the road. Okay. But there's a lot of other people to talk to first. There, there are. I, I, I know, but I appreciate it. So, sure. um, folks, if you have any ideas for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me down the road, get in, get in touch with me, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Again, Mr. Chief Justice, thank you very much for the time. Sure. Landline.